0: Hello and welcome back. My name is Dr. Christopher Gennari. This is the Great Big History Podcast. In this episode, we discuss Arabic Islam. To start, we have to talk about where the Arabs come from, which is Arabia, where Arabic Islam comes from, which is Arabia. And it is a large desert, which makes it the middle of nowhere. It's not important. We have spoken about Mesopotamia. Egypt, Asia Minor, India, Persia, over and over and over again in this course, we've never talked about Arabia. It's the middle of nowhere. It's poor. It's insignificant. And yet, it's the south of Mesopotamia, east of the Nile, and west of the Indus. It is the middle of everywhere, which means it's going to be affected by those major civilizations for as long as those civilizations exist, They'll, they will be mercenaries, there will be trade, they will be merchants, there will be connections between Arabia and these old, settled, urban civilizations. So what we have is mostly tribes, nomadic horsemen tribes. They are small, divided Poor and spend most of their time fighting each other. That changes when we get Muhammad. Muhammad lives from 570 to 632. Muhammad is M-U-H-A-M-M-A-D. That's the spelling I'm going with instead of the one with the O's. It's the older 19th century version. In English, anyway. Uh, who is he? He's a pious merchant. Well, what does that tell you? That tells you something right away. It's not just a noun, an adjective and a noun. Those two words tell you something. One, pious. means he's religious. He takes religion seriously. Now, he's a polytheist. The Arabs are polytheists. They have lots of gods. He's a typical desert nomad. There's some settlements, but for the most part, This is not an urban civilization. But he takes his religion seriously. The second thing is he's a merchant, which means he's worldly. He's connected to other people. He has to understand at least a little bit of other languages, other cultures, other beliefs in order to make deals with these people. And so he knows something of Judaism, of Christianity, of Zoroastrianism, of Hinduism. From merchants who are coming through on their way between India and Egypt, Baghdad and Egypt, and Baghdad and and the Indus. People who are traveling through. Refugees from the wars. People who just want to get away from it all. Monks. And so he's religious, takes his religion seriously. And he's worldly. And then one day while praying in a cave outside of Mecca, he is visited by the angel Gabriel. And that is very important because the angel Gabriel is the angel of the God of Abraham. We have seen the angel Gabriel before. I like to think of the angel Gabriel as an 80s hair metal band putting out their 25th anniversary greatest hits album. You know, with the the Metallica, Ride the Lightning, Angel Gabriel across the top. 25 years. Where have we seen the Angel Gabriel before? Well, it's November. We are coming up on the most famous, the track four, the Stairway to Heaven, the eight minute long super song that everyone knows. And that is when Gabriel goes to Mary and says, Mary, you're preggers. And she says, um... That's nice, but I haven't done the thingy that he makes you preggart. And Angel Gabriel's like, sorry. Nothing I can do about that. You're preggers. In fact, that's the whole point. And Mary's like, well, my husband's gonna be real. My fiancé is gonna be really pissed about that. And Gabriel's like, don't worry, that's track five. Track five is... Boom, going out to Joseph, saying, Joseph, your fiancé is pregnant. And he's like, I didn't do it. And he's like, I yeah, I, we know, we know, we know. We're cool with that. It's okay. But she didn't do anything wrong either. You got to marry her. In fact, you're going to have an awesome son. You're going to name him Jesus. And it's going to be Awesome. And Joseph goes, well, what if I name him Joshua? And like, shh, it's going to confuse people later. Just don't, Jesus. We're just going to call him Jesus. Otherwise things get real confusing. But the angel Gabriel had shown up earlier. The angel Gabriel goes to Mary's cousin six months earlier and says, hey, Lizzie, guess what? You're going to get pregnant. And she's like, that's awesome. We have been trying for so long. I didn't think it would happen. I am totally going to name him Zebediah. And Andrew Gabriel goes, no, 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 no. You're going to name him John. And he's going to like to take a lot of baths. Encourage that. It's going to be cool. Yeah, in case you didn't know, in case you forgot, there's the Holy Family. Mary and Elizabeth are cousins. Which means. Jesus and John the Baptist are cousins. And so if you go to the Louvre. If you go to. um, Any good Renaissance art museum. You are going to see. An unending amount of. Jesus, John, Mary and Lizzie. Doing cool stuff. While they're kids. And I've always felt bad. For their other cousin, Skippy. Cause how ha- ha- how? How do you how do you hang out with them? I mean, how many times do they get back in? Everyone gets strapped into the car, they're driving home, and little Skippy starts crying in the back, like, what's the matter? Oh, Jesus and John think they're so great. Uh, they don't want to play with me. They—they uh, uh, they do stuff like walk on the water together. Well, they're not any more special than you. We all have things that we can do. Uh, but I can't turn water into wine. Well, Jesus shouldn't be doing that at his age. It's inappropriate. We love you, Skippy. We love you. Like, dude, that dude got totally ridden out. How do you go to these birthdays? He got totally ridden out of the history. He's not in any of the art. Cousin Skippy. We've also seen the Angel Gabriel in the Torah, and the Talmud, in the older books. He's the angel that comes to Noah and says, Noah, you're going to want to build a big boat with a room for lots of poo. Don't worry about it. It'll become obvious later. He comes to Moses and says, Moses, hey, I know you're on just walking around You think you're the adopted son of Pharaoh. Turns out you're Jewish. You're going to have to save your people from slavery. Uh, We're going to send you, you're going to wander the desert for 40 years. We're going to finally send you to the promised land, but you're going to die before you get there. Oh, it'll be a great reference later on. Don't worry about that. Uh, And by the way, you have too much bippy on your bippy. You got to cut that stuff off. Like whoa. The angel Gabriel in Christian art is shown with a trumpet. If you watched the uh Kevin Smith movie Dogma, uh it's it's Alan Rickman, you know, Snape from Harry Potter. Uh the metronome, the voice of God. That's that is Gabriel. So why would Angel Gabriel go to Muhammad? because what islam is claiming from the very beginning is that it is the newest update of the god of abraham you have judaism worshiping yahweh you have then the jesus christians worshiping of jehovah In the New Testament, you get New Testament God. Old Testament God likes to beat you up, burn stuff down. New Testament God, hippie God, loves you no matter what you did. Then we have Allah. A-L-L-A-H. Allah, which is the newest update. And the interesting thing is it's kind of more Judaism than it is Christianity. It picks up some of the Christian stuff. Heaven, hell. For example, all-forgiving God, yeah, picks that up too, but also takes a little, goes old school. Yeah, he'll forgive you, but he's still going to give you a whooping first. Oh, and the most important thing, Jesus isn't God. Jesus is just a prophet. In fact, he's the best prophet. He's the most awesome prophet. He's the last prophet. And you go, wait a minute, whoa, 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 what about Muhammad? Well, Muhammad is the dude who's there to fix the problem. See, The way Islam kind of sees itself is, is a solution to the problem that Christians made. Christianity got Jesus, a prophet, human being, prophet, taught some awesome things. And boom, that was it. Done. All the people had to do was follow what Jesus taught and it would be great. And what did they do? What did Christians do? No, Christians didn't kill him. I know you all say that. No, Christians turned him into a god. Not only did they turn him into a god, they turned him into the manifestation, walking embodiment of the god. Now, Christians will eventually take Greek philosophy and invent the Trinity, which will do some cool things with the God, the Father, God, the Son, and then then God, the Holy Ghost. And they're all different, but they're all the same. And it's kind of like a super band, kind of like Rush or Cream from the 70s from the 60s, where it's three people, but it's really one group. And monotheists, both Islamic and Judaism, will look at this and go, uh, there's three gods there. We can count. In fact, polytheistic people are perfectly cool with this because they go, okay, one, two, three, three gods. And like, no, 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 no. It's one god, but it's three aspects of that same god. They're just different, and it's complicated. And they're like, uh, or it could just be you count the three. And so in... Oh, what Islam is supposed to be is the fixing of Christianity. Because Christianity starts with Jews, perfectly good. But then St. Paul and other disciples take it to the polytheistic Romans. And what happened is they cut off some of the Jewish parts and they added some of the Italian Roman polytheistic parts. And boom, you get Christianity. Which kind of breaks a lot of the rules of Judaism, and so here comes Islam, kind of being like, okay, we're gonna fix this. Now you have some good ideas, but yet you're messing up the big parts. So we're here. We're gonna update it all. We're we're a patch. We're a patch. God 3.0. We're an expansion, but we're free. You don't have to buy the expansion. You you get it for free. Those of you who are into MMOs know what I'm talking about. And so Islam sees itself as the newest, most perfect update of God. God 3.0. Allah is Jehovah. Jehovah is Yahweh. Yahweh is the God who invented the world and made Adam and Eve and made all the animals. That's Yahweh. Christians understand Yahweh slightly differently, call him Jehovah. And Islam understands that God differently, calls him Allah. This is complicated, and I understand that. But the important part, you have to understand, the important part that is constantly missed today... Is it's the same God. These are the same religions. They are the same worship. They're not different. Christians, Jews, and Muslims worship literally the same being. They just understand that being to be different. By concentrating on different aspects of that being. Much like in our Byzantine section, we explained it as children understanding their parents and how each child has a different relationship with that parent. And so they understand that parent to be a different person. But to the person, to the, to the mommy, to the daddy, they are still the same person. They're still Joe Smith. But each of their children sees them as slightly different, as a different person, because they have a different relationship. So, um, what happens? So he's visited by Angel Gabriel. And what does he get? He gets the revelations. He gets the Quran. What, what will become the Quran? It's my understanding there's some debate about whether or not he's actually literally given the Quran, or Gabriel speaks and. Uh, Muhammad writes, but that's a miracle because Muhammad's supposed to be illiterate. And so, there's a couple of different stories. But either way, whatever the stories are, you, we get the Quran. Now, I have it spelled with the K. You could spell it with the Q. U. You, you could have it with the Q apostrophe. Uh, Quran. And what the Quran is, it's a complete guide to living, and it's the literal word of God. You want to understand why people, Muslims in the Middle East, get upset. When a Protestant preacher in Florida decides to light a bunch of Korans on fire, this is why. Because one, it's the complete guide to living. But unlike the Bible, it is a literal word of God. For all intents and purposes, God took a vacation. After Christianity, went, up. Oh, this didn't work out. Took a vacation, went down the shore. Got a nice bungalow overlooking the ocean took out his typewriter because this is not something he's writing on Microsoft Word. Took out a nice typewriter, sat down, got himself some nice, lovely, lightweight paper. Rolled it up into his typewriter and started banging it out. Finished. Bound it up. Nice. Gave it to Gabriel. Said, go back in time. Go to Muhammad. Tell him, follow these... Follow this book. And by the way, when he dies and we bring him back into the future, he's going to love Disney World. It's awesome. We'll take him on a visit. That God himself wrote this. The second thing is it's a complete guide to living. It has everything in it that you need to know about how to live a good life. So this is one of the things about Islam, about how Islam is different than Christianity or Judaism. It's got politics in there. It tells you what kind of government to live under. It's got social structures. It's got family structures. It's got political structures. It is a complete guide to living. Now, what is the advantage of this? Well, the advantage is, one, it's got everything you need to know about how to live the good life. Right there in one book, your self-help book. You you don't need an entire store, uh, sections full of hundreds of books, self-help, how to make your life better, how to find happiness, how to make friends and beat up your enemies. No, you got one book. You go to Islamic self-help in 1000 AD, and there is in the bookstore one book, the Quran. The second thing is, it's right. It's correct, because it comes right from God. It comes right from Allah. So it's right. So what's in there is correct. That's nice. That's easy. It's there. It's written in words. If you know how to read, you can gain knowledge from what God wants from you. That's awesome. Judaism is the same way. And so... Here's where Judaism and Islam are more alike. See, here's the thing. Of the three cousins, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, Christianity is the weird one who is picking his nose out on the stoop. Christianity is the weird one. Judaism and Islam have much more in common with each other. And historically, for the 1500 years Islam has been around... Jews and Muslims have gotten way better along than Jews do with Christians. If you wanted to live something of a normal life as a Jew in the Mediterranean world in, say, a thousand, fifteen hundred, seventeen hundred A.D., you'd much rather be in Istanbul, Tunis, Baghdad than you would ever want to be in Berlin, Paris. Cologne, London. You weren't even allowed to be in London. They kicked you out in the 1300s. They kicked you out of Spain in the 1400s, 1492. Christianity is the weird one. Christianity has a Jesus that's a God. Christianity has a person who's resurrected from the dead. Christianity has the heaven. No, Islam will take that, yeah. Christianity has the hell. Islam will take that too. Judaism doesn't have either of those. Judaism has a being with God after the last judgment. Yeah, you got to wait. Christianity is, you get to go there now. Christianity has baptism. Christianity has the seven sacraments. Christianity is the weird one. Christianity doesn't get circumcised. Christianity eats pork. Christianity draws icons. Judaism and Islam don't do any of that. Well, they don't eat pork. They do get circumcised, and they don't draw pictures. Judaism and Islam have way more in common with each other. So you may go, well, wait, 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 why don't Jews and Muslims get along then? Well, that's because of politics, not religion. That has to do with the immigration of large numbers of Jews from Europe and the United States into the Middle East. The violent creation of uh, an Israel and a Palestine in the series of wars This is all going to be covered in History 102. It's politics that has separated these people, not religion. And so we talk about a Judeo-Christian world. Yeah, but it's really a Judeo-Islamic world. Christianity is on the outside. Christianity is the weird cousin that you have to invite to your birthday party. Because your mom said so. And Christianity is overly violent. We t- we'll talk about the Quran, the Crusades. Likes to throw feces on everything, and then pick up all the presents and say, "It's mine! It's mine! It's mine!" And then we'll go run back home. So. So back to the Quran so that yeah so back to the notes but you have to understand these things to understand the relationships between these religions and these societies right it's it's christianity in the crusades that will obliterate jews muslims and orthodox christians in jerusalem murder them all in fact that becomes a saying kill them all god will recognize his own or if you're a metalhead kill them all and let god sort them out. So so back to our our notes, the Quran and the advantages. The advantages is one, the book is right. Two, it's a complete guide to living. So it tells you how to live. What's the disadvantage then? Because there's always disadvantages. What's the disadvantage? There's nothing there's no disadvantage in the Quran in what it says. But there is a disadvantage in how it's written. And how it's written is in poetry and in Arabic. So let's take the Arabic part first. Why would that be a problem? Well, because if you wanted a religion that's a world religion to spread across the world, you wouldn't pick Arabic. No one can read it. You go, wait, 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 what about the Arabs? The Arabs can't read. They're nomadic horse people in the desert. They can't read. 1-2% of them can read. So it's a terrible religion to spread across the world because the no one can read the book. Even the people who wrote the book can't read the book. It's in Arabic. So it's very hard to spread. And since it's the literal word of God, there's there's from the very beginning a desire not to translate it. Now, there will be Persian translations pretty early on, but there is a desire not to translate it. But not a lot of people can read it. Now, you can make the argument kind of like the New Testament in German does. It will encourage people to become literate, and this is true in Judaism, with their bar and bat mitzvahs, where you you go from a child to an adult because you can read. You can read the Torah. So it will encourage, but for a while, there aren't the systems, there's not the wealth that will help people become educated. Compare this to the Bible, compare this to the New Testament. We can't call it the Bible, we have to call it the New Testament. The New Testament is written in Greek. Those four Gospels, in Greek. The letters, in Greek. Why? Because the early Christians wanted to share it and the language of education in the Eastern Roman Empire was Greek. If you wrote it in Aramaic, if you wrote it in some old Assyrian Semitic language or you wrote it in Hebrew, you are limiting the population that would engage in it. You want people to read it, you wrote it in a world language. That's Greek and Latin. And since all of the apostles, all of the early disciples, Jesus himself lived in the Eastern Roman Empire, the language of education was Greek. So he wrote in Greek. And so the the New Testament, the stories of the New Testament, the the letters of the New Testament spread fairly easily among educated elites. Whether they accepted it or not is a different story, but they can read it. They could understand it. Islam has a problem in that it's written in Arabic. No one can read it. The second thing is poetry. Why is poetry a problem? Poetry is a problem because it gives up clarity for art. By the very nature of it being poetry, it gives up clarity. For art. For the beauty of art. What do I mean by that? What does that mean? Well, I'll give you an example. This example is not in the Quran. But I'm going to give you a a example. A simple example so you can understand. Husbands. Love your wives. Uh, Let's start over. Husbands. Because Husbands, Love Your Wives is actually from St. Paul. So I want to get away from that. Husbands, treat your wives as the rooster treats the sunrise. Now that's beautiful. That's elegant. It's wonderful. Treat your wife as the rooster treats the sunrise. problem what does it mean does it mean i should love my wife i should worship my wife i should be so thankful vocally thankful that she is there every day that we're together or does it mean that around five thirty in the morning i should yell at her to get to work get to work get to work get to work. Which one? Now, I like to think it's the first one, but do you know? Are you going to tell God what he means? I don't know. It could be either one. I like the first one. It could be the second one. And who am I to say what God means? Now, here's the thing. As long as we've got Muhammad around, We've got a guy who knows what it means. We can go to Muhammad and say, Muhammad, what does it mean? And he goes, oh, it totally means to... Why would you think you're supposed to yell at your wife? No, no, no. It means love your wife, worship your wife, cherish your wife. What? Why would you think that? Well, I didn't know. Yeah, Good thing I'm here. And so we get the hadith, H-A-D-I-T-H, the teachings, the sayings of Muhammad. Now, there's problems with the hadith. The problems are, is that the hadith really isn't written down for several hundred more years. There's not a problem with the hadith, that it exists. Um, Martin Luther has the sayings of Martin Luther has the what's um, the tabletop talks, I believe they're called. Uh, I had a I had a friend in graduate school who who did an entire part of his dissertation on this. Um, or his early research was on that. We're on these, these, just him, Luther sitting around eating and people would be like, okay, what do you mean by this when you say this? And be like, oh, I mean, X, Y, and Z. This is where like his most, um, anti-Semitic stuff comes out in these, in these things. And the students are like, oh, that's awesome. I'm going to write everything you say down because you're amazing. Um, Buddha has the same thing. Confucius has the same thing. Where having created the philosophy, there's then then like – so Socrates has kind of the same thing. Um, Even though Socrates doesn't write anything down, Plato is basically writing down the sayings of Socrates. And what you have is the philosophy and then it comments on the philosophy because people obviously won't get it. And so you have Muhammad. And so Muhammad says, this is what it means. And you go, okay, and you write it down. And you go, great, that's what it means. And then Muhammad dies. And that's a problem. Not because he dies, because he's a human. But how now does the Quran deal with new stuff? How does it deal with new things? That weren't invented. And so now you have to go into this new kind of, well, what does it mean? How do you deal with it? What is your interpretation? And every generation has to find its own interpretations. So so those are disadvantages because those are going to be, those are problems. They're not, not that they can't be overcome. We just talked about how they can be overcome, but they are limitations. Okay, women in Islam. Women in Islam go through three stages in this course, History 101. They go through three stages. The first is pre-Muhammad society. Before Muhammad comes around in the 630s or 600, 610 is uh, the first revelation, I believe. What is it like for women? And, well, we have a poor, nomadic, desert society. And so women's labor is important, which means women are important. We go back to the nomadic thing. Women have a say. They have some rights. They have some independence because their labor matters. And women's marriages are central to tribal alliances. And remember, these tribes fight all the time. So I go down to the watering hole, go to the oasis, run into Georgie of the different tribe. And Georgie's a jerk. And we get into a fight over the oasis of watering my horses. And I'm like, I'm going to, I come home and I'm all mad. Right. I gave him the finger and all mad. I'm like, I'm going to kill that Georgie. I'm going to go find him. I'm going to kill him. And then here comes my wife going, you can't kill him. Why? Why can't I kill him? Well, because he's married to my cousin's cousin. Which makes us family. And you're like, ah! But he makes me mad. It's like, yeah, that's, I know. I know he makes you mad. He thinks I can't use my horses. And he thinks I say, and I... I want to kill him. And you're like, you can't kill him. We're family. And so what women provided was that lubricant to these tribes of trying to keep them from killing each other. Because if you're family, even if you're distant family, you can't kill each other. And so women were central to the tribal alliances and women play a role in these marriages. Even today, I was listening to a podcast this morning. And a, and a gentleman uh, from Iraq was talking about getting married. And who proposed marriage? His mom. Who made the arrangements of who to marry? His mom and the mom of the daughter. Of the girl. Of his wife. Future wife. Why? Because the families were related. And so it was like we... we this is awesome. We're going to put our, our kids together. Well, all families will be united. It will be awesome. We can even live together like they all live together. They bought a couple of acres of land. They had houses all on the couple of acres. So the entire family lived together separately in their own houses, but together. So dinners, holidays, we're all together. And it was the women, the wa- the, the wives and mothers who instigated that. who proposed it, who argued for it, who negotiated it, well, that goes back to here. That goes back to the pre-Muhammad Arabic society. Women are central to the marriage, to decisions on marriage, and to tribal alliances. So they have a typically nomadic role. They have important labor, which gives them rights and independence separate from men, And their role in marriage, especially politically, is very important. Well, what about when Muhammad comes around? Women in the Muhammad period change, or at least Muhammad changes them. In some ways, the same way um, Hammurabi does. Muhammad changes women into the mothers of believers. Now, they're still economically important. That's true. We haven't had a wholesale change in society yet. We're still desert nomads. But he's elevating women to a new role. From worker to mother of believers. It is their job to raise, to give birth to, and then raise the next generation of Islamic men and women. Well, how do you do that? To do that, you have to know the Quran. Because remember, the Quran is a complete guide to living. So if you want to teach your kids how to be good Muslims, good followers of Allah, you have to know the Quran. Which means women need protection and education. These groups like the Taliban that that assault and attack girls for getting education, they're not Islamic. The Quran is clear on this. Women need an education and they need protection. And protection means the same way you think of Protection. You don't use protection, but you say, uh, we have to raise our kids, we have to pr- provide, we have to provide, rather than protect. But well, they lived in a much more dangerous world, so it's, you have to protect women from want, from poverty, from hunger. So that they can get an education, because if they're hungry, you can't learn anything. If you're worried where you're going to sleep at night, if you're homeless, you can't learn. So men's role is to provide both fathers, husbands, brothers, a world in which women can obtain their job as the mother of believers, as the raisers of children. And not only just raising children, but educating them to be good future Muslims and women thus have to get educated in the quran so women and men go to mosque and hear the preaching now they're separated but we'll talk about that in a moment why they're separated why women go into one section of the mosque and men go into the other but the idea is women need to be literate they need to be able to read they need to know the quran And if they can read the Quran, they can have ideas about the Quran. And those ideas matter because they will teach those ideas to their children. Do you see how this works? So women matter. They are elevated now. Now they have a position. They're not workers anymore, they're mothers. And that mothers have been elevated, they're mothers and teachers. And this is in many ways what Hammurabi does by elevating the status of wife and mother. So if I'm a husband, if I'm a father, actually, I have to marry off my daughter, but marry her off to someone who will take care of her. Even if I don't like the idea of my daughter being married, it's my job. And I may not like it, but one day my wife will come and go, no, Kristoff. You gotta marry, you know. Oh, he found a good boy. Just kind of like Romeo, Juliet and Juliet's mom with Paris. Look, we found a good boy. He comes from a good family. And so women gain protection and education. So it tells you who they're going to marry, too. They're going to marry people who are close to families. And the families are going to have a say in this. Because you now have multiple eyes on you. So if you marry your daughter off to a stranger, you have no idea if he's going to treat her well. So you marry her off to a cousin or more likely a second cousin. You know their parents. You know which which of your cousins are good people. You've known them your entire life. You're like, oh, I'm, there's no way I'm, yeah, you know, uh you know. There's no way I'm marrying off my daughter to to Billy's son. Billy, oh, Billy. I've known him since he was, oh, Billy. And so what you now have is these tight-knit families because they continue to be related even as they, they issue out in their kind of spider web of connections because protection and education it equals personal fulfillment and so to guarantee that that stuff happens you stay you you keep your connections close so i want to go back for a second cuz what we have here is what is a liberal pro feminist pro education system women have rights and independence They now have protections and education. This sounds great. I mean, it's not modern, modern, but it's 600 AD. I mean, how modern can you get? It's better. It is seriously better than what's going on in Dark Age Europe with the collapse of the Roman Empire. I mean, it's probably better in the Byzantine Empire, but the Byzantine Empire is wealthier. And we'll see the effect of that in a moment. So this is a good system for women. So what the hell happened? How do you get a Saudi Arabia that doesn't let women drive? How do you get Gulf states that don't allow men and women to be anywhere near each other? How do we get systems that treat women terribly? Or seem to treat women oppressively? Since I am not in those systems, I shouldn't I can only talk about what I see from the outside. And and oh it's always comparative, right? It's comparative to the American European system, which isn't all that good to women either. With our twenty five percent sexual assault rates and and high divorce rates and high poverty for single mothers. You know. Western Europe can can all talk about how women have the right to vote all they want. We don't exactly treat women very well either. So, um, we have a lot to kind of, you know, it's a our gender issues in Western societies have a lot of glass houses and a lot of glass windows. So throwing stones is is difficult you know we can talk about human rights all you want and i totally agree with that and you're totally right so if you're going to be like but 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 i'm like yeah and i'm with you but we can't say we're perfect and they suck we have to talk about human rights and it's a kind of platonic ideal of what it should be but in 600 a.d this is a pretty good deal for women so what happened? What happened is, ironically, Islam got rich. We're going to talk about this in the next, next lecture. But the expansion and the creation of the caliphates were actually bad for women. Islam got rich. It expanded out of Arabia. They stopped being purely desert nomads. They conquered the Middle East. They conquered Egypt. They conquered North Africa. They conquered India. They conquered Spain. They conquered Central Asia. Or at least convert parts of Central Asia. Islam got rich, and with it came slaves. So you get the massive importation of slaves. We've talked about this in the African chapter where they import 10 million African slaves from East Africa. They will use Christians as slaves. The effect of that was that women no longer need to work. Remember we talked about the pre-Muhammad period where women's labor made them important? Well, now they don't have to do it. And that's considered a good thing. It just has terrible repercussions. This is kind of like women being taken out of the labor force in British factories in the 1880s. Like nobody wanted to work in a British factory. British factories suck. Hard manual labor sucks. No one wanted to do it. That's why you get slaves to do it. The slaves are machines. That's how you think about them. And so, this is considered good. My wife doesn't have to do this backbreaking labor anymore. We have some slaves, and that's awesome. She can spend time teaching the kids more. Hell, now, I can get a slave that will teach the Quran. I got some educated Christians here. They'll learn the Quran. They'll teach my kids. My, my wife doesn't even have to do that anymore. It saves time. She can do more things. She'll have free time. This was considered a good thing. It's not considered oppression any more than it was in the 1880s. No one was twirling their little pencil British mustache going, ah, how can we oppress women? We'll make it so that they can stay at home and eat bonbons on the couch and go to department stores. Ha, 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 ha. that will show them. Nobody said that. They said, look at how horrible working in a British factory is. Why should we do this to women and girls? There has to be a better system. Now, the best of intentions. As the old saying goes, the the, the highway to hell is paved with good intentions, and that's going to be the problem because not only are women not no longer needed to work. They also bring in other people's ideas. They bring in the Byzantine idea of separation, of keeping men and women apart. The Spartans did this. Remember we talked about the Spartans way back in the day, where the Spartans at the age of seven separated their boys from their girls. And they lived separately. They didn't live together in a married house until the age of 27, So we're going to separate boys from girls. Part of this is to show wealth. Look at how much space I have. If you're poor, if you're a desert nomad, everybody lives in the same room. But the Byzantines had wealth. The Byzantines had multiple rooms. They could keep people apart. And let's face it, you have done this or have thought this. Do you really want your best friends coming over for beers and wings and then staring at your sister? Really? You're cool with that? If any of you have had that feeling, where one of your friends, after a couple beers, turns to you and says, Hey, when did your sister get hot? Like, dude, no. No, no. And so... What the Byzantines did was separate men from women. So these kind of sexually impolite ideas didn't happen. But it also showed off wealth. I can do that. I can build a whole separate wing on my house just for the women folk. And again, not considered oppression. It was considered protection from your drunk-ass friend ogling your sister or your niece. Or your cousins. You want that. The second idea is the veil. That's a Persian idea. The veil covering the nose and the mouth. Now... The hijab, H-I-J-A-B, the covering of the hair, if you take a look at our, 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 our Islamic Barbie with her huge eyes, blue eyes, glossy lipstick lips, she's still covering her hair. Everybody in the Middle East does that. The hijab is everybody. Take a look. At your any picture, just type in Google, go to Google Images, and type in Virgin Mary and take a look at every image. And not one of them is her sexy, sexy hair flowing down over her shoulders. Hair is sexy. It goes back to Bathsheba, where David is seduced watching Bathsheba after taking a bath, not by her naked body, but by watching her Seductively Just combing her hair Now I shouldn't say seductively She doesn't do it seductively She's just combing her hair He falls in love with her Then murders her husband And then marries her Because of hair But the idea is If you've ever been in the Middle East You know this Sand gets everywhere It's also a protection from the sun It's 125 degrees in the summer So you cover up the men cover up the women cover up we can, we add to it the then religious ideas of humbleness before god of propriety of not sharing your sexy sexy hair with men who just out there walking around thinking naughty thoughts about you we add that to something we were already doing everyone in the middle east Covered up. They still cover up because it's dust and sun and hot. So you cover up. So, but the veil is a Persian idea that covers the mouth and the nose. And well, the Persians were successful. The Persians have a great empire. Look at this. When we conquered the Persian Empire in the 1630s, 40s, 50s, The Persians are wealthier than Arabs are. So they took that idea too. When they conquered the Byzantine lands in Palestine, in the Levant, in Syria, they say this is how these guys live and these guys are awesome. So we're going to do the same thing. So things you think of as oppressive Arab Islamic ideas actually aren't Islamic at all. They're not Arab either. The veil is Persian, the idea of boys and girls being separate so that in Saudi Arabia today, you don't even shop in the same level of the mall. That the first day you spend alone with a woman who is not your family member is your wedding night. That's a Byzantine idea going all the way back to the Spartans. When the Byzantines were the their Greek Romans to when they were Greeks to when they were Spartans all the way back. That idea. The Athenians did it too. So all of these things that they borrow from other cultures, plus the fact they got rich and have slaves, turns into isolation for women. And not isolation becomes the loss of rights, the loss of education. Because they don't need to do things anymore. Now, you're, you may say, well, what about the burqa? B-U-R-A-Q, I think it is. What about the burqa? That's obviously oppressive. Actually, it's not. And your mind just exploded. But it's not. The idea of the full covering, the face and everything. The idea of that is to allow women to go out into society And not be harassed. Not be ogled. That's the idea. Is to allow them independence. In society. What it does is say. Men are so terrible. So sexual. So predatory. That the only way to protect women. From them. Is to make them ghosts, is to make them invisible, is to make them look the same. In America, it's slightly different. Men buy guns for this reason. I've had many a person say, I bought a gun to protect my family. From who? From who? You live in the middle of nowhere. Who is going to break into your house? You're in Idaho. There is no crime. Other than smoking marijuana there's n- that you grew yourself, there's no crime. Who are you protecting your family from? And the, the piece in parentheses is other men. Other men, So I have to have a gun on me all the time. Whenever I go, I go to the mall, I got to have a gun on me because of other men. That men are so violent, so predatory, that I have to carry death on me. At all times, even in a place with no crime. And my wife will carry a bazooka. There's plenty of people who say the same thing about women owning guns. The only thing that will protect them from men. It's not from children. It's not from little girls. It's from predatory men. So American society feels the same way about men. We just go about it differently. Um... So the burqa is meant to allow women to go out. And as an educator, as a person who teaches 19, 18 to 25 year olds, I have seen plenty of boys walk into walls in the spring because they ain't looking where they're going because they're looking at who just walked by them. And the idea is they are having thoughts in their head. That are not nice thoughts. Those thoughts in their head are not, I want to marry that woman. I want her to be the mother of my children. I want to honor her in a way that she deserves to be honored. That is not the film that is going on in his head. And here's the question for women. Do you want to star in that kind of movie? Now, in the West, we say that men should just f and deal with it. Not think those thoughts. Deal with women as equals. And I totally agree with that. Totally do. And one day we may get there. But this spring, I will watch boys look backwards at young women and then walk into walls thinking naughty thoughts. And so Islam deals with that. They say, well, um, we'll, we'll just make it so that all the women look the same. So they could go out and buy milk without being sexually harassed. If you go on YouTube... And you type in, for one of these movies, like a woman walking, 10 minutes walking in New York, or 10 minutes walking in Chicago, and look at how much harassment a woman gets in America. And then there's one or two that are like an Islamic woman, 10 minutes walking in New York, and she's covered, and nobody bothers her. Nobody says, hey, good-looking no weird dude walks behind her for 10 minutes. No guy walks up to her and says, Hey, baby, you want to go to a party? I'll make you feel good. Nobody does that. That's freedom, too. That's freedom from harassment. So, my point is that what looks like oppression through one lens is actually freedom through another it's all about the perspective and it's really about the person participating there are plenty of Islamic women who wear the hijab or the burqa because they want to because they feel it gives them identity because they feel it gives them freedom Because it's what they want to do. And it's thus oppressive to then say, you shouldn't, you can't, you have to live like me. Well, maybe I don't want to get harassed by a bunch of strange men walking through Times Square. Maybe I don't want to get touched. Maybe I don't want to get harassed. Maybe I don't want to get assaulted. Because remember, the first question any cop will ask about a sexual assault is what were you wearing and why were you wearing that? It is a trope. Maybe they don't do it anymore but it's a trope at least as far back as the 70s. It has been a trope ever since female liberation and feminism. What did you do to bring this on, to deserve it. The victim blaming, the slut shaming. That's Western society. So I'm trying to just put this into perspective because I don't want it. it's not that simple. It's not so easy just to say, they're living in the middle ages, they suck. Because they don't see it that way. And what you view as freedom can also be oppression. And what you view as oppression can be seen as freedom. Now, what you view as oppression can be oppression, and what you view as freedom can be freedom. But on this issue, it's much just much more complicated. So what we have is a, is three stages: women go from being poor, but economically and thus socially important, to being elevated socially, and educationally important. They're no longer just workers. They're now wives, mothers, teachers. And then finally, they lose a lot of that because they're not needed, because they lose their economic independence. They lose their economic status because, ironically, Islam got rich. The richer Islam got, because it relied on slave labor, the worse it was for women. Whereas in Europe... The richer the society gets in Rome and the Byzantine world, the richer the society gets, the more rights women got, the more education they got, the more independence they got. So in our next episode, we will talk about Islamic politics and the rise of the caliphates. I hope this was illuminating. Thank you.